0: to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Last words say a lot about the person who said them. For instance, Leonardo da Vinci's last words were, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. A little humble, much? Mary Antoinette on her way to the guillotine, stepped on her executioner's foot, and her last words were, pardon me, sir. Murderer James W. Rogers was put in front of a firing squad and asked if he had a last request, and he replied, bring me a bulletproof vest. (laughs) Convicted murderer Thomas J. Grasso used his last words to complain about his last meal. He said, I did not get my spaghettios. I got spaghetti. I want the press to know this. And my personal favorite last words are from Henry Gibson. When someone told Henry Gibson, you seem to be feeling much better today. He replied, on the contrary. And then he died. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in John 16 today, we're going to finish this famous upper room discourse. It started in John chapter 13, and this is the ninth and final sermon on the upper room discourse, and here we find Jesus' last words of his teaching to his disciples. He's going to the cross, and Jesus is relentlessly seeking to prepare his disciples for what it's going to be like when he's gone, but they also have, these words have much to say to us today while Christ is gone from the earth for us. Let me ask you, are you tired And frustrated with God's plan for your life. Are you weighed down with worry by the trials that you're facing? Have you been told that to be a Christian is to have this peace that surpasses all understanding? But all you feel is despair like these disciples. Well then let me tell you, this sermon is for you. These final words of Jesus are for you. And maybe that's not you. Maybe life is going great right now. You don't have a care in the world. But let me tell you why you need John 16. Because your time will come. You know what I mean when I say your time? Is is that there is a day of despair in our lives for all of us. When when we're going to cry out like Job did and said, Lord, I wish I was never born because of the pain that I'm feeling. But in John 16, uh, we have these sweet words of comfort that Jesus gives to his disciples right before he leaves them. And my prayer for us this morning is that when sorrows and tribulations come our way, we would be able to endure because of these words that Jesus said to the 11. So if you haven't already, please turn to John 16, verse 16. Because in John 16, we're going to find three ways Christ transforms our circumstances. The first way Jesus transforms our circumstances is by turning our sorrow to joy. We'll find that in verses 16 through 22. Secondly, in verses 23 to 28, we'll find that Jesus turns our separation from God to communion with him. And thirdly, in verses 29 through 33, Jesus turns our tribulations in this world to peace in him. He turns our sorrow to joy, our separation to communion, and our tribulation to peace. So let's pray and we'll dive into this sweet passage. Triune God, before this world's days even began, your word was in the beginning, and it was with you, and it was you. The mystery of the Trinity brings us to our knees, yet today you allow us to open your word and know you better. So, you, so we ask that you would give us <laughs> eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us open hearts, and by the power of your Spirit, may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is preached. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Look with me to verses 16 through 20. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he was talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me again. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Let's stop right there. You may have noticed as we were reading that passage that seven times the phrase a little while shows up. When you read your Bible and you hear that kind of repetition, it should cause you to perk up your ears and to lean in because the biblical author is trying to get your attention. And here, if we, if we want to understand John 16, we have to understand what a little while here means. Which is a daunting task because when the 11 disciples first heard it, they didn't understand it. It seems like they were too embarrassed or afraid to ask about it. And it's not just the disciples who this phrase has confused because biblical scholars all over the place are completely divided about what a little while means. It's like I'd pick up one commentary and I'd be like, oh, that makes sense. And I'd pick up another one, he totally disagrees, and on and on and on. Uh, So for instance, first, there's some who say that Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. There's some who say Jesus is talking about his ascension to heaven and then his second coming at the end of time. There are even some who think that Jesus is talking about the coming of the Spirit. Because remember back in John uh, 16, right before this passage, Jesus was talking about sending the Spirit. And in John 14, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to come to them by the Spirit. And there's a great argument to be made for each of these views, which is why I'm going to agree with all of them. I think Jesus is cleverly speaking in such a general way that he's speaking about his death and resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and his second coming at the end of time. Uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle is so helpful in this. He wrote, To confine these words to the single point of Christ's approaching death and burial appears a narrow view of their meaning. Like many of our Lord's sayings on the last evening of his earthly ministry, they seem to extend over the whole period of time between his first and second comings. And I think J.C. Ryle is spot on the money. Verse 16 reads almost like a proverb because Jesus isn't referring to any single event. Now, Jesus does primarily have the cross in view. That's the littlest, a little while, that he's talking about. Look with me to verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I know a lot of people who will gladly stand up and say, I love babies. I don't know anyone who goes around saying, I love birth and birthing. We love the joy that we get from a new child being brought into the world, but no one loves that sorrowful process of childbirth. And so Jesus uses this brilliant analogy and he tells us that in the same way, when a woman's hour has come to deliver, his hour has come. And that word hour is pregnant with meeting, if you'll pardon the pun. Jesus uses this phrase of his hour 22 times in the gospel of John, and he's talking every time about the cross, the hour of the cross. Jesus is a few hours away from his hour. In chapter 17, he'll pray. In chapter 18, he'll be arrested. Chapter 19, go to the cross. So in a little while, his disciples will no longer see him because in a little while, he's going to be sentenced to death. In a little while, he's going to be publicly nailed to the cross. And in a little while, he'll be buried in a tomb and his disciples will weep and lament And the world will rejoice. But in a little while, the stone will roll away. In a little while, the Son of God will walk out of that grave. In a little while, the disciples will see and hear their rabbi face to face. And their sorrow will turn to joy. Their hearts will rejoice. And no one will be able to take that joy away from them. Amen? So that's the littlest little while that Jesus is clearly talking about. But there's also a sense in which these words clearly apply to the Holy Spirit. After the resurrection, the disciples were so excited that Jesus had returned, but they still expected Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom then and there. And they asked Jesus, Lord, now, is now the time for Israel to be restored? And then Jesus tells them, it's not the time to make them princes and governors of an earthly kingdom, but to be ambassadors of a heavenly kingdom. And then he ascends into heaven and he leaves them. But then in a little while, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to them, his presence in the spirit to empower his apostles, fill them with joy and power and to fill them with his own presence. So that's clearly, I think, a little while that Jesus is talking about. But then finally, in this triple meaning little while, these words clearly have meaning for us today as we wait a little while for Christ to return visibly to us. Think about the apostle John and why he wrote these words. None of the other gospel, gospel accounts record the words found in this passage. So why did John choose to write them when the other gospel writers didn't? And I think it was probably because his gospel was written much later than the other gospels and we know that it was. And at this time, the church was facing enormous persecution from the world. When John wrote this gospel, James had already been thrown off of the Temple Mount and beaten to death. Peter had already been crucified. Paul had already been beheaded. John was most likely writing this on, in exile on the island of Patmos. He was surrounded by Christians who probably felt defeated and worried and sorrowful. And so he writes this gospel account. And he includes the upper room discourse. And these comforting words are spoken even to us in our sorrows to let us know that our sorrows are not forever. We live in this a little while between Christ's first and second coming, and we look forward to when we'll see our Savior face to face, either when we die or when he returns. Because in that moment, when we see him, Our sorrow will turn to joy. And that's the first way Jesus transforms our circumstances, by turning our sorrow to joy. But the second way is this. Jesus turns our separation from God to communion with God. Look with me to verses 23, uh, just 23 for now. In that day, you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. In, this, in these verses, we're told for the third time, as Christians, that we're to pray in Jesus' name. And that if we pray in his name, whatever we ask, we will receive. Now, I'll just be straight up honest with you. As a young Christian, I struggled so often with the concept of prayer. Because even though I would pray in Jesus' name... It was my experience that I did not receive whatever I asked in his name. And I wrestled a lot with prayer because I couldn't understand why God was not answering my prayers. Was it because I had done something wrong? Was it because I didn't have enough faith in God? Was God even there to answer my prayers? Well, the problem was not God. It wasn't even my own faith. My problem was that I did not understand what it meant to pray in Jesus' name. To pray in the name of Jesus isn't some magic spell or incantation. It's not as if by tacking on in Jesus' name to the end of your prayers that you're forcing God's hand to do what you want. No, to pray in Jesus' name is to pray acknowledging Jesus as the one true mediator between God and man. You see, all of us, because we have all sinned, have become alienated from God. We've become separated from God. That's why when Adam and Eve sinned, they had to leave the Garden of Eden because God is so holy that he cannot even be in the presence of a single sin. And our sin has cast us out from the presence of God so much so that God will not hear our prayers We have no relationship with him, and we could never enter into his holy presence without being utterly destroyed. We have no idea how sinful we really are and how holy God really is. That's why hell is pictured as being eternally separated from the good grace of God. And if you're not a Christian this morning, your biggest problem is not that God doesn't hear your prayers but rather that one day God will judge you for your sins and you'll be eternally separated from his goodness and grace forever in hell. And what you need more than anything else in this life is for someone to intervene. Someone to come between you and God and to mediate on your behalf or you have no hope. But the good news is Jesus came to be that mediator. Jesus always enjoyed perfect communion and communication with God the Father because he never sinned. But then he went to the cross on our behalf and was judged in our place. And that's why on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was forsaken for us. He took the wrath and the judgment we deserved. But after a little while, He rose from the grave, defeating sin, hell, and death itself. And now anyone who humbles themselves and goes to God in the name of Jesus can have their sins washed away. No longer will you be alienated from God and far from God, but you can now have a relationship with the Father and speak to Him in prayer on the basis of the name of Jesus of Nazareth. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying knowing that we can only have access to the Father through the person and the work of the Son. This is a deep truth. So deep, in fact, that apparently the 11 disciples did not understand it until after the cross. Read on with me in verses 24, 24 to 28. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive So far, it seems like the disciples knew Jesus to be their rabbi, the Messiah, the son of man, the son of God, but apparently they did not yet understand his role as the one mediator between God and man. They had not yet received that forgiveness of sin they needed so badly from Jesus. And if you understand, then you'll probably, uh, then you'll understand that verse 23 is not talking about asking for health and wealth and prosperity. Verse 23 isn't saying that Jesus' name is the magic lamp which we must rub rub to unlock God as our cosmic genie. No, verse 23 is primarily in its context about receiving reconciliation, about receiving forgiveness. Though we were once far off, though we were separated from God because of our sin, Once we asked in the name and the power and the blood and the sacrifice of Christ, we were forgiven. We were reconciled to God. And this is why Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except by me. Because salvation is found in no other name than the name of Jesus. And now we have this relationship with God the Father where we can go to him in prayer and enjoy his presence. Did you catch that in verse 24? Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. You know why heaven is so great? Not because there will be no more death. Not because we'll see lost loved ones. All those things will happen. But the greatest feature of the heavenly realm is God himself. He is the greatest thing in the universe. He is the supreme source of joy which our hearts long for. Nothing in this world can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Only God can. It is better to be in the presence of the Lord and to have nothing than to own all the riches of the world. It is better to be loved by the Father and hated by the world than to have the whole world love you. Psalm 1611, Lord, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. This world cannot offer you that kind of joy. If someone comes to me and says, Hey, I can give you 99% joy for 10,000 years. Saying no thanks. Because in the presence of my God is 100% joy. Fullness of joy forever. For all eternity. No one can match that. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is not just that we're promised to enter into his presence when we die or when he returns, but that by the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus, we can enjoy his presence now. As believers, we have a joy that the world cannot take away. Now we know on this side of eternity, our joy, it ebbs and flows. There are some seasons where we can feel the joy of Christ so powerfully that nothing can shake us. And then there are some seasons where we're burnt out, and tired, and that joy just seems like a pipe dream. Why is that? Why is it that we experience seasons of sorrow and seasons of joy? Because until we we are fully in the presence of the Lord, you're gonna have to fight for your joy. You may have heard it said before. I've heard many pastors say it. I don't even know who said it first. Prayerlessness leads to joylessness. One of the ways that you fight for your joy is by going to God in prayer, which doesn't make any sense to me because, you know, if I was sad or feeling down, I wouldn't expect pray, because that's not usually what I expect from prayer. But it is in prayer that we experience the presence and love of God the Father. And if you've been living a joyless Christian life, let me ask, how's your prayer life? How often do you go to God in prayer? How often do you bring to Him your pain and your troubles? Not just to ask Him for things. We certainly do that, but to to bring our hearts before Him. How often do you go to God to thank Him for all He's given to you? How often do you go to God just to praise and worship Him through prayer? Are you relying on yourself to solve all of your problems? Or do you go to the Lord? Go to him in prayer and be amazed at the ways that he answers your prayers so that your joy may be complete. Our sorrow will turn to joy. Our separation from God will turn to communion with God. And finally, our tribulations in this world will turn to peace in Christ. Look with me to verses 29 and 30. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. And this is why we believe that you came from God. And this is where I just have to stop in shock. Seriously, guys, were you not just listening to Jesus? Jesus just said in verse 25, I am not yet speaking plainly, but I'm speaking in figures of speech. And I'm looking at these disciples and I'm just thinking, you've got to be kidding me. They don't have a clue about what Jesus is telling them. They're right in verse 30 that Jesus knows all things and he comes from God, but they're missing the point entirely of what Jesus is saying. They don't understand why he's leaving them. The disciples are saying this, almost expecting Jesus to congratulate them and to be proud of them. Hey, Jesus, finally we believe you. We know you came from God and nothing can shake our faith. That's their attitude right here. And so look at how Jesus responds. In verses 31 through 33, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has now come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Remember, just three chapters ago, Peter was so confident in his unwavering faith that he told Jesus, I am ready to die for you. And how did Jesus respond? He said, Peter, before sunrise, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And in a very similar way, these disciples were so sure that they had finally gotten it, so sure that their faith in Jesus was strong. And Jesus tells them, you're about to be scattered. You're going to abandon me when when my hour comes. When Jesus is arrested, his disciples flee for their own safety to their own homes and abandon their teacher. And this makes verse 27 even more remarkable. The father knew these disciples would forsake Jesus, yet he still loved them. And you may have felt the love of God when you were saved, but now after falling and stumbling and returning to old habits and vices that you feel unworthy of God's love. And in a way you are. But the good news is that the love of God is not dependent on how well we hold on to him, but on how well he holds on to us. Even though Jesus is going to be abandoned, he won't be alone. The Father will be with him the whole way. And that's how Jesus is going to endure the cross. Because it's better to be loved by the Father and hated by the world than to have the whole world by your side. Jesus is warning his disciples one final time that they should not expect an easy life if they want to follow him. To be a Christian is to be hated by the world. If you're thinking about becoming a Christian because you want a better life, let me just tell you right now, your life will probably get worse. And that's why Jesus is telling his disciples, don't try to find peace in this world. Don't try to find comfort in this world. Don't trust in yourselves or your own ability to keep my commandments or to love me. Trust in me. You know why? Because I have overcome the world. Even at this moment, Judas was speaking with the chief priests and the Pharisees. And as the Roman soldiers are putting on their armor to come and arrest and kill Jesus, Jesus has declared that he has already overcome this world. In the shadow of the cross, Jesus declares victory because everything that was about to happen was all about what was planned before the foundations of the world were even laid. And that should give us much peace in this life. If Jesus has overcome death, hell, and the grave, then nothing in our lives won't be overcome by him. Amen? Amen. Remember my prayer this morning was that we could embrace Jesus' final words for his disciples. So that when sorrows and tribulations come, we would be able to endure. Because in John 16, we found three ways Christ transforms our circumstances. He turns our sorrow to joy, our separation to communion, and our tribulation to peace. So let me ask you, how is your joy? I'm not asking about your happiness. I'm, not, I'm asking about your joy. I'm talking about the kind of peace that will last through the worst of circumstances. Because you know that you deserve to be separated from God for eternity in hell. Yet Jesus has brought you to the Father to be in relationship with you. Maybe that's not you at all. Maybe you've never been forgiven. You're far from God. So let me just ask you, what are you waiting for? Christ has made peace by his blood. And all that's left is for you to believe. Is to come to him in faith. And maybe you're a believer, but you've just been living a joyless life. And the first question is obviously, how is your prayer life? When trials and tribulations come, is communing with God in prayer enough? Is prayer something that you just do because you feel like you're supposed to? Like it's your obligation to prayer? Or do you go to God in prayer seeking joy? And do you really believe Jesus when he says, I have overcome the world? Well, I have three pastoral charges for you. Three ways that you can apply John 16 to your life and endure no matter what trials may come your way. First pastoral charge. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. If you're not a Christian in this room today, the greatest peace you need is not a peace that will help you through hard times. But the peace that you need is peace with God. Because of our sins, we were all enemies with God, deserving nothing but his holy wrath. But by the blood of Christ, we can have peace with God. If you repent of your sin and put your faith alone in Jesus, no longer will God be your judge, but your father. You'll be adopted into the family of God. Your sins washed away. You'll be at peace with your maker. Don't delay, but come to Christ today and have peace with God. Second pastoral charge. Find joy in prayer. Find joy in prayer. To quote J.C. Ryle again, Let the lesson sink down deeply into our hearts. Of all the list of Christian responsibilities, there is none to which there is such abounding encouragement as prayer. It is a responsibility which concerns all, high and low, rich and poor, learned and unlearned. All must pray. It is a responsibility for which we are all accountable. All cannot read or hear, or sing, but all who have the spirit of adoption can pray. Above all, it is a responsibility in which everything depends on the heart and motives within. Our words may be feeble and ill-chosen, and our language broken and ungrammatical and unworthy to be written down. But if the heart be right, it matters not. He that sits in heaven can spell out the meaning of every petition sit up in the name of Jesus and can make the asker know and feel that he receives it. End quote. If you're not sure what to pray for, I've got some awesome places that you should start if prayer is not a regular part of your life. First off, take the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, most of them are prayers to God. And you could just take those and pray scripture back to, to God. And that helps us to make sure the topics of our prayer lifts aren't just on our physical needs, but are also a form of worship. Um, also, the reason we have church directories is not primarily so you can call each other because you all have each other's numbers. It's primarily so you can pray for one another. You take that directory and you put it in your Bible and you take a couple names a day and you pray for your fellow members. And, and lastly, here's, here's just an ad for prayer meeting. Come to prayer meeting. Um, if you're not already, uh, let, me, let me say this. I, I know that not everyone has the time or availability and Sunday morning is what's commanded in scripture. Prayer meeting's not, it's, it's a secondary thing. Um, but it has slowly evolved over time to become one of my favorite times of the week. In a lot of churches, prayer meeting is a time where we just pray for all the sick people, and then you go home feeling depressed because all you talked about was depressing things. (laughs) But at our prayer meeting, we do not just pray for the sick. We confess our sins. We pray prayers of thanksgivings. We pray prayers of adorations where we just speak to God and tell him how great he is. And all that to say is that we commune with the living God together on Wednesday nights. And we find joy in speaking to him. You don't even have to pray out loud to come. You can pray silently. I encourage that. But I really encourage you to come and pray with us. um, And I promise you, you'll leave with more joy than you can come with. Uh, But it's just such an important principle that we have access to the Father in a way that is unprecedented. We have access to the almighty God of the universe, no longer as our judge, but as our father. Uh, Timothy Keller said it so famously. He's a pastor down in, in New York City. Who dares to wake up a king in the middle of the night for a glass of water? Only the child of the king dares. And that's the relationship we have with our father. So pray. Go to him and find joy in prayer. Final pastoral charge. Have confidence that Jesus has overcome the world. Have confidence that Jesus has overcome the world. If our God is for us, who can be against us? If God gave us his own son, why shouldn't we expect him to also give us all things? Because Christ has overcome the world. No one has the power to condemn you. Satan is powerless over you. The world has no hold over you. Sorrow will not have the last word. Grief will not have the last word. Death will not have the last word. The pain you feel, the depression you live with, the evils of the world, your trials, your tribulations will not have the last word because Jesus has overcome the world. Amen? Amen. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who has loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because he has overcome the world. Amen, somebody. Amen. So don't forget that Jesus has overcome. And on that note, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Thank you for these words of your son. May our minds be renewed by them. Help us to remember and recall them in times of trial so that we can endure through whatever tribulations come our way. We praise you for overcoming the grave. We thank you for bringing us into relationship with you through your spirit. And we ask that your son return quickly. But in the meantime, grow us and make us more like Jesus so that you are our greatest desire for we know that nothing compares to you. And it's in the power and the blood and the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray, amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Fork and Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, If you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to hurricanebaptist.com.